This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville, our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. I'm your host tonight, Katie Ganaway. This week we celebrate Mother's Day as members of our Sundial Writers Corner remember moments when their mothers and grandmothers proved to be Janes of all trades. She got up at 4 a.m. every morning, gathered the kindling and coal, stoked up the coal stove, and began cooking. We'll also hear a mother's account of when she became a cool gamer mom. So when he invited me to join his squad in Fortnite, I said yes. And we'll hear about a utopian ideal where time takes the form of a mother. She would forgive us again and again, understanding that perfect may only be practice. Excerpts of Cherished Memories with Mom from the Sundial Writer's Corner. That's next on the Public Radio Hour after this news update. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville, our award-winning mix of special programs and homemade radio features. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Katie Ganaway, your host for tonight. In the month of May, we celebrate the women who gave us life by giving them flowers or maybe a special lunch. Mother's Day brings back fond memories of our mothers growing up. This episode features Sundial Writers Corner poets and storytellers showing their love for their mothers and their appreciation for motherhood in general. First, Mariah Beachboard tells us how a hobby she picked up in her first child's infancy later brought her closer to her second son. Our kids choose crazy ways to love us. They follow us to the bathroom. They ask us questions before we drink our coffee. They stare at us while we sleep, and we try not to freak out. When they bring us lizards, buttercups, and their favorite fallen leaves, we receive their offerings. They invite us to their tea parties, nerf wars, survivor marathons, and we accept. But when they invite us to play their online games, do we engage? Okay, full disclosure, I am a gamer. My first kid took two naps a day. It was bliss and mind-numbingly boring. So I took up gaming. For several hours every day, my avatar ran through demolished streets and virtual maps and took out whole teams with finesse. No-scope sniping became my favorite method of eliminating enemies. When my baby woke up from her naps, I'd type into the chat bar, Gotta go, guys. My baby just woke up. The other players' responses always made me smile. You have a baby? You're a mom? I wish my mom played. Well, many years and many games later, enter my middle child. He exists in two worlds at the same time. The consequential physical world and the frolicking digital world. He loves socializing and constantly craves company. And, like all children... He desires parental validation of his hobbies. So when he invited me to join his squad in Fortnite, I said yes. My son eagerly explained how to play, but I absorbed none of what he was saying. To be frank, Fortnite overwhelms me. It requires creative building and first-person gunplay at the same time. This hurts my brain. But when our avatars leapt off the flying battle bus and dove into the Technicolor Fortnite world, my son said, Mom, follow me. He found me a sniper rifle. He built brick walls to hide me from the expert players. 
And after my first win, no one celebrated louder than he did. Then he took me to a special event hosted by the real DJ star, Marshmello. This event reminded me of hanging out in clubs, without the dangers of alcohol, drugs, and dating. Everyone on the map attended this digital rave in real time. We danced and watched a vibrant light show. What a splendid shared experience. What a fun memory. When I play with my son in his world, I give him the opportunity to love on me and be generous to me in a place where he excels. I still sign on with him and explore the newest additions to the Fortnite maps. I participate in his conversations with friends, and I accept all the loot he can find, though I still play poorly. If your kid chooses to love you with an invitation to his crazy world, do say yes. Next, Monita Sony remembers the time her mother recruited her to write a sweet, persuasive letter to her father. I was in eighth grade. We lived in a rambling mansion in the city of Nectar, the border town of Amritsar. My dad worked for E. Merck Farmer. He was transferred to Bombay on a promotion. Dad went to Bombay alone and wanted to send us to Chandigarh to live with our extended family. Bombay is a scary, bustling metropolis like New York City. But mom wanted us to be together. More so, she wanted to be with dad. So she asked me to pen him a note. She dictated but gave me full liberty to embellish it. Dear Dad, I wrote, We miss you. We don't want you to be alone in the big city. We yearn for our conversations at the dinner table. There's no one to coax us to eat more spinach or not to squabble over the last slice of mango. The sitting room is lonely too because we don't have your eccentric friends over for poetry readings. We can't sleep outside in the courtyard under the stars and it's not fun reading stories alone. Your office mail is accumulating and mom makes me do too much math. Even the parrot misses you because he can't climb up and perch on your head. If... You bring us all to Bombay. We promise you that we will adjust well and will never complain about living in a small apartment, about learning a new language or going without weekend treats or vacations. As long as we can see you every day. We miss you, Daddy. We want to be with you. As soon as my dad got my letter... He wrote back that he was lonesome too. He would try to come over a long weekend and see how he could organize something. As soon as my mom read this, it gave her hope. Hope gave her wings. In two days, she packed our stuff in big crates and nailed them shut with the insouciant hand of an artist that she was. With her savings, she bought four one-way tickets from Amritsar to Bombay 
and since she could not organize a transport service at such a short notice, she hailed a bullock cart. This primitive but practical carriage carted our belongings, including a Kelvin refrigerator, to the train station. Swaying precariously like a newly married bride on a camel's hump. When Dad saw his family pantheon on a rickshaw, followed by a chaotic bullock cart, he burst out laughing. He looked at my mother and by the set of her jaw, he knew she meant business. He asked her, How will we carry all this to Bombay on the train? Oh, that's your problem, she said. We are going with you. Here are the tickets. Luckily for him, the station master was dad's friend. So he kept our stuff under a top and sent it to us one item at a time. The last one to arrive was our fridge. That day, my mom made the best mango ice cream. Ahead, we hear a poem from Rebecca Harbour-Jones about her mother, a master at making do. And next, Terry French performs a piece about an old picture of her mother she found standing in front of a statue of Babe, the big blue ox, just before Terry was born. Babe. There's a Polaroid photo I have of my mother from 1958. She's wearing pedal pushers and saddle shoes, has a tight perm and a big grin. Behind her is a statue of a big blue ox. The picture was taken in St. Ignace, Michigan, by Castle Rock Lookout near the Canadian border, Paul Bunyan country. It is said the giant lumberjack and his big blue companion, Babe, dug the Great Lakes so the ox could have a sufficiently sized watering hole. My mother's 15 in the photo, It is probably the last family vacation with her parents and two younger brothers. I gaze at the picture of the young girl looking so tiny next to the ox. I see her smile, and I know her whole world will soon change. Dressmaker, dreammaker. She sewed on treadles machines, passed from her mother's sister and her father's mother, She sat in the rocker where she had rocked her only baby and stitched the handwork parts. She could make a pretty dress from a print chicken feed sack and a yard of bought solid fabric. And while she whipped hymns, she built air castles, college where she could not go and where her daughter would go. You're listening to the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville. We continue listening to heartwarming stories from the Sundial Writer's Corner about mothers and their place in our lives when we return after the break. We're kicking off summer reading with Read Around the Block at the Madison Public Library. This year's summer reading theme is a universe of stories, and we have fun for all ages. On Saturday, June 1st at 9 a.m., there will be relay races, big trucks, birthday cake, games, face painting, and of course, information on summer reading. Yarbrough's Educational Reptiles will host a live, hands-on animal show at 11 a.m. Information at hmcpl.org backslash summer. 
Thrive Alabama offers primary health care services to the greater Huntsville community. Most insurances are accepted, and we offer sliding fee scale discounts for the uninsured based on eligibility. We see patients for acute issues such as allergies or the flu, and chronic illnesses such as diabetes, high blood pressure, or HIV. Our mission is to empower our patients to create a healthy community by providing compassionate, accessible, affordable, comprehensive care. New patients are welcome. Information at thrivealabama.org. This is the Public Radio Hour on listener-supported 89.3 Huntsville. Tonight, our Sundial writers remember what it was like to grow up with strong, multifaceted women in their lives. Sometimes it's your mother, and sometimes it's your grandmother. Here's Rose Battle sharing memories of her granny. You insist painted June's pigeons, ancients. I finally figured out after my whole life how our granny ruled a small town from her kitchen, pantry, and porch. Granny's home is in Bridgeport, Alabama. She lived in her home from marriage at 18 until her death at 78. There, her blind sister, Anaki, and her friend Vashti, who helped her for 60 years, lived. Plus, Lord knows how many others besides her husband and eight children. Granny's house was marked by the hobos who rode the train that passed her home. She fed all the hobos who rode the train that passed by her home. She fed all who knocked on her door. She got up at 4 a.m. every morning, gathered the kindling and coal, stoked up the coal stove, and began cooking. You could count on the town characters to begin stopping by soon. Joe Moon, who had been injured in World War II, came by to light Granny's five fireplaces. He got the first cat heads, biscuits, country ham, red-eye gravy, and grits served up for the day. I loved porch duty at Granny's. Granny wouldn't and couldn't leave the kitchen, so I would get to receive the front door ladies who came to talk and rock. Best of all, I could take what Granny called the happy offerings, left as gifts by Granny by all the people she'd fed, prayed with, raised, taken in, and told the unvarnished truth to. Granny had offerings left on her porch daily, okra, tomatoes, sweet peas, and roses, little notes reporting who was sick so she could pray, send food, and send the right preacher to visit them. Granny had a small black leather coin purse with a little brass clasp on it. It was magic. She never had more than 50 cents in it. She had no bank account and no car, but things flowed in. At three and a half years old, I could walk to Barnum's Grocery and get Granny a tin of snuff. If I whispered in Mr. Barnum's ear to ask for the snuff, I'd get a penny from Granny. He charged it to an unwritten tab which never appeared anywhere. Granny had saved his baby from a fire. I love the names of Vashti, Anaki, Joman, Tura, Pleas. Every day I got to receive all the people on whatever porch they showed up on at Granny's. Lots of peeling, snapping, boiling, carving, and preserving went on all day. Every once in a while, Miss Ann Evelyn came out of the porch and hollered, Yoo-hoo, to tell Granny some gossip. The only fly in the ointment was when Granny received a parrot on the porch as a happy offering one day. Pete the parrot soon learned to say, Yoo-hoo. 
I guess to watch Granny quit cooking and run out on the porch with no Miss Evelyn on it at all. Two of Granny's projects were the little gilly boys. They were twins and imps. They needed switching, was the town's consensus. They liked to try to get in to see Pete the parrot, but Granny wouldn't let them in because they'd probably pull out a feather. She'd give them homemade cake out the back screen door, but they were the only ones not allowed in. Finally, one day, Granny told the little gilly twins if they would behave for 24 hours, she would let them in to see Parrot Pete. She told them her scouts would be watching them, and her scouts had eyes in the back of their heads. I could verify that. At the crack of dawn the next day, Joe Moon was lighting Granny's fireplaces, and we heard the gilly boys at the back door. Granny handed them a country ham biscuit and led them to the parrot birdcage. They said, Why, Granny Troxel, you uns painted uns pigeons, Anchins. Now that I think of it, that's the answer to Granny's being in charge of a whole town who adored her. She fed all who came to the door. She took in every single unredeemable one of us and painted our old ruffled, ragged feathers until we shone. Every single one of us became painted pigeons. For Shri Bushanan, the caretaker role has switched. Shri tells us about his adventurous mother who acted as a Jane of all trades throughout his upbringing. Mom turns 85 this month. She was born in the South Indian state of Kerala in 1934 and attended a convent boarding school. She still remembers her principal, a British lady named Brooke Smith. After college, she tried for medical school, but due to a congenital hearing defect, she didn't interview well. My grandfather arranged for a job, which took her to Madras. In 1961, my mother and father who was working in Bombay, had an arranged marriage, and my mother moved there. I was born in Bombay and have very fond memories of my childhood. While working full-time, mom took baking classes. I especially remember her making melting moments, warm cookies that literally melted in your mouth. Mom also cooked mutton kebabs against dad's wishes. Mom felt that growing children needed animal protein, even though Dad eschewed meat. Later on, Mom became vegetarian and has remained one since. In 1984, she retired and devoted the next three decades to community service. She volunteered at orphanages, taught yoga, and practiced alternative medicine at a clinic nearby. In the 1990s, when my parents visited Madison, Mom volunteered at Madison Manor Nursing Home and the Public Library. She also taught yoga. To channel Barbara Mandrell, Mom taught yoga when yoga wasn't cool. Mom was also active at the Senior Center and believed in immersing oneself in the community, wherever that may be. After Dad passed away in 2005, Mom embarked on travels to Australia, China, South Africa, and Sri Lanka. When she turned 80, she stopped traveling. 
While continuing her volunteering activities, mom had a fall in 2016 and has not been the same since. She has quit yoga and barely uses her phone. This is someone who practiced yoga for nearly 40 years, walked almost everywhere, loved to paint, read voraciously, emailed and Skyped regularly, and even created music with her harmonium. Last summer, we visited India and brought mom home to our apartment in Trivandrum. Mom's gait had slowed down considerably, and I held her hand everywhere we went. Our routine for the next two weeks involved a 10-minute morning walk for breakfast and the newspaper. On the way, we talked about mom's childhood. I had taken a coloring book by Maria Shriver for people with Alzheimer's. I thought it would be a great activity for our kids to do with grandma. Mom showed scant interest in coloring. I printed out some pictures of the kids and stuck them strategically throughout the book. Mom would look at the pictures with a smile writ large upon her face, but she would not color. One day, our girls and my nephews went to a park nearby, and we joined them. Seeing the girls on the swing, Mom decided she wanted in. I was reluctant, but Mom was adamant. I relented and held the metal chain and gently pushed her. But Mom wanted to swing by herself. I was not having it, as we were leaving the next day and didn't want an accident on our hands. Mom insisted and I caught a flash of the sprightly spirit mom had just a few years ago. So I let her swing by herself with my heart in my mouth. I hope in those few moments she was taken back to her childhood days. The next day, we all flew to Bombay for our flight home. My sister joined us for a delicious meal at the Taj Mahal Hotel. We returned to mom's apartment and spent some time there. When it was time to leave, Mom started sobbing uncontrollably, something I had never seen her do before. I hugged her and pulled her forehead to mine as tears rolled down her cheeks. We rode the elevator down to catch a cab to the airport. I hoped that for the two weeks we were there, my family gave Mom some joy to hold on to until our next visit. Happy Mother's Day, Ma, and happy birthday. When we come back, Peggy Tucker reimagines Father Time as a maternal figure, and Margaret Van regales us with some of her mother's wise expressions that have stuck with her through the years. Stay tuned right here to 89.3 Huntsville for more of this special episode of the Public Radio Hour. Want to put your skills to use helping improve our community and work in a creative, enriching environment? WLRH is hiring a second promotions membership specialist, and it could be you. This part-time position will work with our PSA program and help build our membership. Please no phone calls, faxes, or drop-bys regarding this position. Following these instructions is important. You can find all the details at wlrh.org. 
Fantasy Playhouse Children's Theater and Academy announces its inaugural fundraising gala, Rocket City's Got Talent. Performers will showcase their talents in a competition in front of a live audience and panel of local celebrity judges. The evening will also include food, drink, and other activities. The star-studded evening is Friday, June 7th at 6 p.m. at Randolph School's Thurber Arts Center. Ticket information online at fantasyplayhouse.com slash gala. Welcome back to the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville. You're listening to stories and poetry written about mothers and motherly figures by our Sundial Writer's Corner. Ahead, Margaret Van recites the phrases her mother lived by and passed down to her. We also hear Chris Ferguson's interpretation of the term mother. But first, Peggy Tucker paints a picture of time portrayed as a woman. Mother Time If time were a woman, I would not fear her passage. She would not march on as much as she would dance to a graceful rhythm. Each year would bring beauty more ravishing, with mirrors of truth more fair and refined. Great would be her healing touch, as now, but softer, and oh, much sooner. New love would never grow old, and fun would have no wings at all. Babies would grow a little bit slower, and teens a bit faster. She would wait for every man, woman, and child, knowing we cannot all finish the race together. She would forgive us again and again, understanding that perfect may only be practice. She would not expend her essence on everything under the sun, no war, no hate, no envy, no greed. Nor could she feel wasted by our dwaddling or daydreaming, for these are the moments we are at peace with her. Her cycles are the seasons of man and earth and sky, but she would shorten winter and lengthen spring and fall. There would always be enough of her to go around. The present would be just one option, tomorrow another. Death would come when we negotiate the hour and would be the gentlest invitation from Mother Time. It would be no more than resting on her infinite bosom in the circle that turns and forever will turn. I would follow happily if only time were a woman. Advice from the Matriarch. Sunshine, you'll never know, dear, how much we love you. Don't sit on the edge of the seat. You may fly off and be killed. I know a mother whose child sat on the edge of the seat, and when the dad had to stop suddenly, why, that child flew off the seat into the windshield, and its brains dropped down into its mother's lap. This is some of the first advice I remember Mama offering. Crack your eggs into a small bowl before you add them to the batter. Why, I remember someone who cracked an egg into her cake batter and out came a dead baby chick. Had to throw the whole mess away. Mama's specialties were pies and grilled cheese. In the summer, we fixed our own potted meat sandwiches, but she did cook a mean biscuit using bacon grease for the lard. If you make your bed first thing in the morning, why, your house will be neat all day. 
This from a woman who did not like, enjoy, nor do housework. First Anne, then me, then Sarah got to do the cleaning and often the cooking. Mama's idea of cleaning for a party was to put out candles to light just before the guests got there. After we left, the dust bunnies grew until she found a paid cleaner. When going around a curve, don't take it on the inside. Why, I know a mother who always took her curves on the inside, and when her daughter learned to drive, she did like her mama, got killed by an oncoming car on the inside of the curve. I believed her, because my mama drove a stick shift two-door 39 Ford nonstop all the way up Highway 41 from Valdosta, Georgia to New Philadelphia, Ohio, with six children. She had to know the safe way. You made your bed, now lie in it. This was advice to a 17-year-old daughter who had eloped with her true love. You can't come home now was the message, but she was a doting grandparent, paid that daughter's way through college. Always pay cash. This from a woman who lived through the Depression, raised six healthy children, put them all through college, and ended up with a house full of loving grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren. She knew what she was about. The Lord helps those who help themselves. She never cited the chapter and verse. Couldn't, because it's not there, but firmly tried to live that way until sundowner's syndrome crept upon her. Her days became mixed with nights and lights and time, Where was she about at 2.30 in the morning? Where there is life, there is hope. Her children firmly believed it and tried to preserve her life in a safe place. She ran away from safety to gather home and hope. Then she went looking for her husband, found him one night in a dream. She knew. She is home now. There is a saying that love is a verb. It's a description of doing something, an action or reaction. I love my dog describes that I give my dog love. I do that, yeah, but I think that love is actually a noun, in the English language anyway. The noun that I use for it is mom, a person, a place, or a thing. We all have a person named mom. She's more often than not the one we return to when we're looking for home, so that makes her a place. Hmm, a thing? Well, the thing is love. Remember when someone said to you, you look just like your mom. You blushed and laughed, but you know it was true. Just like that, we all inherit love from our moms. Some of us know that, others not so. It's a well of compassion way down inside each of us. It's there to remind us of who we are. The world is both a natural place and a human place. Nature is called Mother Nature for a reason. The human place is ruled by moms and dads, and for many, mom ruled dad, which means that we as children were or are ruled too. But moms are defined by understanding, humor, belonging, sacrifice, and most of all, love. Those things become the fabric of our hearts and lives. My mom was born in Jabapur, India, during the colonization period. She's English, lived there until she was 19 years old. She's 84 years old now and still going strong. She asks me questions all the time like, have you washed that shirt? 
or the one that gets me, you need a haircut. We get along great. The connection to history, my history, is in every conversation with her. I know that my understanding of myself is reflected in her. I do all that I can to keep that part of me in everything I do. Everyone does that. We can't help it, and that's a good thing. A mom is the definition of love, and Mother's Day is the holiday we celebrate her. By doing that, we celebrate love. Julia Ward Howe, who wrote the words to the Battle Hymn of the Republic, promoted the idea of an International Mother's Day in 1872 to recognize that peace had finally come. It was on May 10, 1908, when Anna Jarvis finally succeeded in getting Mother's Day recognized as a holiday. It could actually be called Love Day. At least, that's how I think of my mom. Ahead, Rita Montero describes the headstrong, nurturing woman who raised her in vivid imagery. Rita tells us about Agnes. And we'll dive into the Sundial archives and revisit familiar stories on both sides of motherhood from Penn women Nancy Rohr and Sally Estes. It is Mother's Day, and I remember my mother was the love of my father's life. When your father entered my life, mother said, I experienced a joyful happiness no one had brought me or would ever do. Alone with her, the night before he died, he said to her, Agnes, I love you so much. I remember the sharp, fresh smell of Yardley's lavender cologne, the only perfume my mother would use, her dazzling white sun-dried laundry. My mother enjoyed life of medium height, She ascribed her tenacious strength and energy to the daily three-and-a-half-mile walks to school in extreme seasonal temperatures. She had cream-coloured skin, a lively, smiling presence, and luxuriant ebony black hair to her shoulders in natural soft curls. I remember vividly her calm, purposeful hands with tapering flexible fingers and oval-shaped nails, always spotlessly clean and transparent. We saw them joined together in daily prayer, but never saw them raised to punish us. We felt love and a sense of security as she massaged with warm olive oil her children and grandchildren, their gentle touch as she nursed us through childhood illnesses. They were elegant when she enameled her nails a crimson red before she went out with my father for an evening of dinner and dancing in a deep Tyrian purple georgette full-length dress, sprinkled lightly with silver spangles. My mother was particularly sensitive in caring for the poor. As leader of her girl guide troop, she had learnt essential treatments in medical emergencies. I saw those same hands make a tiny half-inch cut with a sharp, sterilised razor blade across the infected wound on a young man's leg, which had turned dangerously septic a noxious green and yellow. She cleaned up the wound, put a generous layer of antiseptic ointment on it and bandaged the leg. This treatment was repeated until the wound healed completely. Born to ask questions, she encouraged her children to do likewise and find solutions. A good education for both girls and boys was absolutely essential. 
excellent at mathematics and English language. My mother saw clearly that straightened financial means brought humiliations in a school which had excellent standards, but stopped at the middle level. She completed the middle school examination with distinction. She carefully saved the money she earned from a job as a teacher's aide. When her father again refused to transfer four of her younger siblings to a neighboring school where they could obtain a high school certificate, she replied, I can and I will. And she did. Circumstances made my mother an elementary school teacher, but she would have wished to be a doctor. In later life, she worked daily at a neighborhood free clinic, helping the doctor to care for the poor, hobbled by illiteracy. She would accompany them to a clinic or public hospital to get the treatment they needed. One of the life goals of my father, a civil engineer and my mother, was to give their two daughters and son their choice of a university degree and professional training. My mother, the realist, knew this meant financial planning, stringent saving and investment. I wear the pants in this house, my father said to her with a twinkle in his eye. She looked at him with a knowing smile. My father was the only financial provider, but it was my mother who was the gatekeeper of family finances. A shrewd and alert investor of hard-earned money, a meticulous spender, she always made a budget and kept careful accounts of money. Bordering on frugality, she had strategies to make a cent go a long way. Backed up by my father's total support, she elicited our complete involvement in all her plans. She kept us motivated and striving. We enrolled ourselves for extracurricular programs, continued to achieve in academics and obtained admission to the best schools and colleges available in India. Love was the central core of my mother's life, expressed and lived by her own personal example. She had a simple plan for action and never let you down. In 1968, my husband had an opportunity to work in Huntsville for a year. Our sons could grow and learn. A month before school started, I drove the three boys south, down the byways and the twisty mountain roads. After Scottsboro, the road, now even more narrow, led us through a tunnel of dense green vinery. Posting, boasting it was, parading its way from one side of the road, across the lowering trees, and back down the other side. All very edgy, spooky, and a bit mysterious. Kudzu and growing up might be intimidating. As we came over the mountain in the night, at the edge of Huntsville, outlined before our eyes, was the remainder of the empty Dallas Mills, a ghostly dark shell lighted by the backdrop of town. It was only going to be a year, and we would grow. At the rodeo in Hidden Valley, we discovered our first ever corn dogs, fried okra at Bon Air, and biscuits at Aunt Eunice's. So much to learn. Two of the boys signed up for youth football. About the third evening of practice, the coach seemed disappointed. As dusk came on, he spoke to a few of the fathers, who then got in their cars and circled the field. Then headlights were turned on, and the boys continued to practice. Things were going to be different here. 
Having tearfully left the family pet behind, a small notice in the newspaper invited anyone to UAH's science lab to get free research gerbils. One might guess we should have found a bigger cage for the babies that followed. So much to learn. Now, at that time, liquor could only be served at private clubs. The boys were fascinated with the empty miniature whiskey bottles that some of their friends had found. Not to be outdone, they rode their bikes to the Dempsey dumpster behind one of the local bars. It was easy grubbing through the top layers of paper and cardboard, but it was clear the good stuff was at the bottom. Standing on the seats of their bicycles, they could still not stretch quite far enough. They devised a plan. If the two elder boys held the youngest by his feet, he could reach inside all the way to the bottom. Proudly, they amassed quite a collection. Our sons walked to and from the neighborhood schools. After school, the walk always took longer as military-like stacks of those wondrous Osage oranges were piled as ready ammunition, and it was years later that the middle son shared that he just knew the sounds of the rocket tests on Redstone were really giant footsteps following him home. As one might see, growing up has many steps. This was all during the first month of our stay that lasted now over 44 years. I'm still growing up in Huntsville and proud of it. My mother and I decided it would be fun to take a vacation together. Mom and her friend Mary were in their late 80s and usually traveled together with my mother, Sarah, driving her car. The two families could not see them making another long trip, so it was decided that Mom and I would go on a week-long trip in her car. The main destination was Old Town Williamsburg. We got there early in the morning, and since Sarah could not walk very far, I left her on a nice shady bench and ventured out to find a parking place. I located one about a half a mile down the road, parked and hiked back to the bench to get Sarah. The day was spent looking at historic buildings interspersed with visiting antique and candle shops. By late afternoon, we were hot and exhausted and decided we needed to find a motel. I seated Mother once again on the shady bench and started my hike to get the car. I found it and headed back to the pickup zone. The bench was empty and Sarah was nowhere to be seen. After double parking and quickly searching the area, I realized I must do a more intensive search. After finding another place to park, I ran back to the still empty bench. 
I searched the village, went in all the candle and antique shops, and inquired about ambulances, elderly ladies with heat stroke, and local kidnappers in the area, to no avail. No clues were found. I knew I needed help. I headed for the emergency first aid station and passed an alley. Glancing down the alley, I saw my mom. She was sitting on a bench with an attractive elderly man eating an ice cream cone. They were both talking excitedly. I entered the conversation. May I cut in? Looking up, my mom said, Would you like some ice cream? Albert just brought me a cone. Albert gave me a friendly smile and scooted a little closer to my mother, looking pleasantly innocent. Mom said, Albert happens to be kin to some people I know in Cherokee, Alabama, where I grew up. Oh, really, Albert? And who are they, I said. The Smiths? Mother was not familiar with that particular family, but she was sure they lived there. What a coincidence. After gathering Mom, Albert, and two half-eaten cones of ice cream, we again headed for the bench. I left to get the car, leaving Mom and Albert in deep conversation, with a promise that they would still be there when I returned. Mom and Albert told each other goodbye, and she got in the car. Darkness had fallen. She turned to me and said, Has anyone ever told you that you have a gnarly disposition? Helplessly, I replied, No. Well, they missed their chance. And this was the beginning of my trip with my mother. On the road again Just can't wait to get on the road again The life I love is making music with my friends And I can't wait to get on the road again On the road again Going places that I've never been Seeing things that I may never see again I can't wait to get on the road again Road again, like a man of gifts, we go down the highway. We're the best of friends, insisting that the world keep turning our way and our way. It's on the road again. Just can't wait to get on the road again. The life I love is making music with my friends. The last featured Sundial writer tonight is Cindy Small with a tale about a grim doggy mishap that took place at her mother and grandmother's lingerie shop in downtown New Orleans. Grandma Joan and my mother co-owned a French lingerie shop located in the heart of the New Orleans downtown financial district. The paradise for businessmen with secrets. A bloated tan chihuahua named Cha-Cha lived inside the front glass display window of the shop. Cha-Cha curled up amid mannequins outfitted in plunging uplift bras and bustiers that were the sensation in Paris. She believed her little dog added a dash of cuteness to the otherwise dramatic backdrop. 
With a she-devil temper, Cha-Cha gnarled at everyone passing the storefront. She was the mascot of the store for 13 years. Eventually, she began slowing down. We opened the store one morning and found Cha-Cha flat on her back in the display window. Bloated, with all four feet in the air, she had a frozen clown-like expression on her face. Shocked, I grabbed a lacy French gown from a rack of clothes, slung it over my arm, and rushed to slide open the display window door. Cha-Cha passed on to her sweet rewards. A black lace wreath with tiny pink paper rosebuds hung on the front door of the store, while a huge watercolor painting of Cha-Cha rested on an easel in the entryway. On the floor were her toys, a tiny leather silver-studded collar, rhinestone earrings, Cha-Cha's porcelain feeding plate, and her pink chenille bed, all reminders of her surly, disagreeable life. Grandma insisted Cha-Cha rest in peace with our family at the cemetery. Temporarily placed in a tarp in the basement freezer for a week, Grandma picked an off time when the cemetery was vacant and with her burlap bag of gardening tools visited our family cemetery plots. Bending down on bony knees, she carefully took a razor-sharp knife from her canvas bag, and if slicing a piece of cake, she cut a finely shaped square into the lush St. Augustine grass. Once she carved all four sides with her tiny arthritic hands, she gently lifted the moist square piece of sod. Then she placed it on the side and lightly scooped out specks of loose dirt from the hole, creating a deep and even space. Grandma held the defrosting animal in her arms. Using her quilting needles, she weaved each blade of grass around the square until it all became one. Her manicure scissors trimmed any unwanted loose pieces of grass until the square piece of sod blended perfectly with the lawn. The store was never the same without the sounds of Cha-Cha. In less than a month, another dog arrived named Jolene, who relocated inside the display window. Grandma immediately enrolled her in the crew of Barkus, a dog-only Mardi Gras parade comprised only of canines that looped throughout the French Quarter each year. Wrapped in tangerine boas, Jolene clipped on the cobblestone streets proudly, as though she was destined for the life of a drag queen. It was quite clear she was proud to become part owner of a French lingerie store.
And we end with a special song shared between me and my mom, Linda, by Amy Grant called Baby Baby. Amy says she dedicated the song to her inspiration, her then six-week-old daughter in 1991, Millie. The song has since been remixed with pop star Tori Kelly. I love you, Mom. Thanks to our Sundial writers for allowing us to hear personal memories and poetry with reverence to mothers and motherhood. You heard the works of Rita Montero, Terry French, Shree Buchanan, Chris Ferguson, Mariah Beachboard, Moni Tassoni, Rose Battle, Peggy Tucker, Margaret Van, and Rebecca Harbour-Jones in their own voices. You also heard the voices of Nancy Rohr, Sally Estes, and Cindy Small from the show's archives. Thanks to Sundial pioneer Judy Waters, and thanks to Brett Tannehill for helping me produce the show. Find podcasts of the Public Radio Hour and explore the vast archives of one of this station's longest-running traditions, the Sundial Writers Corner, on our website, WLRH.org, under the Programs tab. We hope you'll tune in next week and every Thursday night at 7. That's right here on member-supported 89.3 Huntsville. I'm Katie Ganaway. Thanks to moms everywhere for everything you do, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.